0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long War Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
1: The Hub is a space celebrating ten years through the
0: community. Created by the world's
1: The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone.
0: Good afternoon, everybody. You're all very welcome to today's iteration of the Trinity Early Modern Seminar. Um, I'm Patrick Walsh, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the seminar today. It's a great pleasure that I get to introduce our speaker today, who's Dr. Leanne Calvers from the University of Hertfordshire, um, who is an historian of gender, of religion, um, of the family, really, and has written, um, is probably best known for her work a former Ph.D. from 2015, entitled Love, Life and a Family in Ulster-Presbyterian Community, completed at Queen's University, but also for her articles in a range of high-profile journals, whether it's Irish Historical Studies, Women's Historical Review, the Journal of Family History, Irish Economic His- and Social History. Um, and more recently, she's been working on a really fascinating transnational project, in which she's going to speak to us on an aspect of today, a project entitled sexuality and social control uh, Irish Presbyterians in the Atlantic world 1717 to 1830, which Leanne tells me is going to be the next book. And this project, um, I think, absolutely fascinating, and also goes under the sort of name um, on the Twitter handle of promiscuous Presbyterians. Um, which I think it gives some sense of the project. And the paper today, which draws from that is entitled, I am a man and a minister, Regulating Ministerial Misbehavior in the Atlantic World, circa 1717 to 1830. And just before I hand over to Leanne, um, I just want to again remind people, any questions you have, please post them in the Q&A tab at the bottom of the screen um, and then we'll be able to put those to Dr. Calverst at the end of the paper. So all questions, post them in there, we'll post them at the end. and to remind you that previous, pa- previous seminars are available um, as podcasts through the Trinity Long Room Hub, as will this paper in time, and indeed future papers. And we'll come back to those at the end of the seminar. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Leanne.
2: Hopefully you can see my PowerPoint. Yep. Yep, cool, okay. Um, So just before um, I start rattling off with my paper, I always like to open up with new audiences that you may notice over the course of my paper, I do have a slight speech impediment, I have a stammer. So if you hear me stammering, it's nothing to get overly excited about, everything will be perfectly fine. Um, I want to thank Patrick for the invitation to speak at the seminar today so this paper is based on the research for my British Academy project entitled sexuality and social control Irish Presbyterians in the Atlantic world, Um, I should note also that the project received. um, The project received um, funding um, from from it's the Women's History Association of Ireland's Anna Parnell travel grant, as well as a research fellowship from the Presbyterian Historical Society in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, It's very much a project in progress. And it's informed at this point by discussions I'm having with students at the University of Hertfordshire on a special subject module called um, sinners and scoundrels, which focuses on nonconformity in the Atlantic world. And this has enabled me to sneak my research into the classroom, which if anyone's trying to do research at the moment, will understand. Um, today's paper is entitled I am a man and a m- m- minister regulating ministerial misbehaviour in this Atlantic world. And it considers how m- m- ministers acted as focal points for Presbyterian anxieties about sex and the family. So in august 1710 the reverend robert tara eh- an irish presbyterian minister was cited to appear before the presbytery of monaghan on account of a fama comosa, so um a rumor that was circulating that he was guilty of intoxi- guilty of intoxication of fighting and arguing with members of the community. The presbytery suspended him while they investigated and when they recalled him the following summer, they outlined the case against him. Now the charges against Dar were extensive. Multiple witnesses attested to his bad behavior. They told how Dara was frequently intoxicated, resulting in physical altercations and abusive out- purse directed at anyone who was near to hand. Uh, James Wilson, for example, told how Dara had narrowly escaped getting into a brawl with two men in a tavern, remarking how he had challenged them to a fight, telling them he had a sword and pistols, good arms as any in Ireland. When James tried to help Dara home, he vomited in the street multiple times and then sped off on his horse, waving his hat and his Um, on the ground. When James went after him he recalled how he perceived in the dark a horse coming towards him with an empty saddle and further up the road he found his minister on the ground. Dyer's bad behaviour also bled into his family life. Servants and others who spent time in the minister's household sketched out a picture of an abusive husband and a cruel master James Maxwell, for example, shared stories of domestic violence, noting how he had watched Dara follow his wife from room to room, and corner of the house to another, scolding her, and how he had put p- 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 his wife down to the ground. When challenged on his behaviour, Dara had simply replied that he would be master in his own house. John Randall and other servants told how the household were obliged to bear with such practices as brawling, abusing and repeating, it being the ordinary current of his way. Indeed, he told how Dara beat a servant named John Smith severely with a pitchfork, a method of punishment that Dara justified by saying it was no man's business and he would chastise his family as he pleased. Dara's unruly behavior also affected the relationships he had with other mm ministers. And what has to be my favorite description of his bad conduct, Dara was abused was accused of abusing several mm ministers, calling them unfaithful in open presbytery. And he heckled and used abusive words against some others and threatened to grab them by the nose and give it a twist. And as was the case with his family affairs, Dara defended his right to act as he pleased, protesting that he was a man as well as a minister. The link Dara made between being a man and being a minister is important. And indeed, these two aspects of his identity appear to have been in constant contest. As a minister, Dara was meant to be a role model of virtuous behavior. As men set apart from their communities, ministers were regarded as models of masculinity. The ministerial values of piety and discipline underpinned this ideal, with religion acting as an important means by which self-control could be exercised. Its religion was a force that was believed to curb unmanly activities and behaviors, such as intoxication, violence, and unrestrained sexual passions um ministers as men who lived their lives in service to the church were therefore held up as models of good behavior and aberrations in their conduct were under intense scrutiny as a result as the public faced the poster boys of the presbyterian church the behavior of ministers was closely surveilled indeed as the presbytery of monaghan remarked of the reverend Dara, his behavior was unsuitable to his station, unbecoming the gospel and a matter of public reproach. The people had made his conduct the subject of their public talk and their song over their cups. And I just love that idea of people down in uh, the pub having a drink, having a gossip over the bad behavior of their minister. Dara's unmanly behavior had brought the reputation of the church into disrepute. It's my research in Presbyterian communities in North America suggests that ministers in the n- 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 new world were subjected to much more intense levels of scrutiny than their counterparts in Ireland. And it was the job of the Presbytery, the middle court of the Presbyterian church court system to deal with complaints put against m- ministers. And they were called in for all types of misbehavior, whether this was alcohol, fighting, rowing, hitting, People having sex with married women are standing at the pulpit and throwing up all over themselves. The American presbytery records dealt with much higher numbers of misbehaving ministers than in Ireland, and their minutes are amazingly rich in detail. The connecting strand throughout these cases is how the figure of the Minister made manifest Presbyterian anxieties about sex and the family, and in this my work is in. Added to recent scholarship by. Joanne Paggiato and Katie. Pagliato. Parkley that emphasizes the corporeal and emotional domains on which manliness was constructed. And my paper builds on this scholarship by thinking about how religion, gender and sexuality intersected and shaped the experiences of Presbyterian ministers. And the paper draws on two cases of misbehaving ministers to cast light on some issues that are of concern to the American Presbyterian Church, and that is incest and same Sexual acts. So, so, sexual relationships between uh, close kin have historically been restricted by law and custom in most societies and cultures, yet definitions of what constituted incest were contingent on historical time and place. Presbyterian understandings of incest were enshrined in the Westminster Confession of Faith, a document that outlined its basic principles and police. Chapter 24 on marriage and divorce stated that marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word, nor could any such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful. So in common with other Protestant traditions, Presbyterian understandings of what constituted incest were based on prohibitions outlined in chapter 18 of And these outlawed marriage and sexual relationships between family members who were related through both marriage as well as blood. Um, in the Presbyterian Atlantic world, incest became a hot-button issue over the course of the 18th and the 19th centuries, and central to these disputes were interpretations of the incest prohibitions, specifically the lawfulness of marrying the deceased wife's sister. As the work of Brian Connolly has mapped out, these disputes near amounted to a schism among Presbyterians in America and became popularly known as the marriage issue. The point of dispute centred over the meaning of Leviticus 18.18 that mandated neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister to uncover her nakedness beside the other in her lifetime. The problem was that the prohibition was unclear. In her lifetime, did this mean that one could marry a sister in uh, after the death of a wife? Indeed, the majority of incest cases that came before the church courts for their judgment involved marriages between men and their sisters in law. Uh, relationships between uncles and nieces amounted for much smaller numbers and other forms of incest were extremely rare. The debate around the deceased wife's sister exposed anxieties about the boundaries of appropriate behaviour in the family. As Brian Connolly has noted those who sat on the opposing side of the question argued that such marriages inscribed a dangerous eroticism onto the family, that in other words the family itself was potentially an incestuous space. At marriage, a wife's sister was effectively to become the husband's sister. If a man could hold sexual feelings for his sister through marriage, what was to say he didn't hold those feelings for his natural sister? Would wives have to live with the knowledge that their husband and her sister could potentially be plotting behind her back? So the incest prohibitions were seen as necessary as they placed a check on illicit sexual behaviour and that removing them could effectively say that sexual relationships within the family were okay. And it is these types of debates that form the backdrop against which the case of the Reverend Mr. Sterling was investigated by the Presbytery of Newcastle in October 1764. As a Presbyterian minister he was meant to act as a model of good behaviour. His relationship with his sister in law became a public spectacle, casting not only himself but the reputation of the church open to widespread scrutiny and the testimony collected from eyewitnesses in the case reveals much about contemporary anxieties around the place of sex in the family. So the gist of the case is this So, Mr. Stirling was called to appear before the presbytery after scandalous reports were circulated that he had been found in naked bed with his wife's sister Martha. And importantly for this case, Mr. Stirling's wife was very much alive. Now, the pair had been travelling companions and had stopped to stay overnight at an inn that was managed by a woman called. Clara C- Cummings. Their inappropriate behaviour was first discovered by Margaret M- 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 Malloy, the servant maid, who had shown the pair to their separate bedrooms. When Margaret realised that Martha had not left M- M- Mr. Sterling's room, she spied through a crack in the door to see what the pair were up to. When she saw Martha taking off her clothes in full view of Mr. Sterling, she ran and told her M- mistress that Mr. Sterling was going to bed with his sister in law. Initially Sarah did not believe the maid but she relented and instructed her to take a candle and go to a closet in the room under the pretense of fetching a book. Margaret did as she was told and in a much distressed state reported back that the pair were definitely in the bed together. Sarah then decided to confront the pair herself and got one of her a woman called Mrs Lyle to accompany her. The two women entered into the room where they find Mr Stirling and Martha in the bed with one another. Martha's clothes, including her petticoat, were on the bed and Mr Stirling's clothes were on the table. The couple were apparently lying close to one another in an intimate posture. Mr Stirling was on his back his arm under Mary's head and her face turned into his and the intimate nature of their lying in bed together was continually emphasized in the depositions of those who who appeared before the presbytery to underscore the fact that this was not a brotherly sisterly relationship instead this was incestuous and insidious Mrs Lyle's testimony took this assumption further remarking on how the pair had pretended to be asleep when they first entered. According to Mrs Lyle the pair were lying cheek to cheek and as she entered the room she observed one of them tuck in the clothes as with their feet, an action which made her wonder why Mr Sterling spoke as if awaking out of sleep. The insinuation here being that if they were sleeping together as brother and sister why the need why the need who pretend what were they really hiding if mrs lyle then approached the pair in bed went right up to mr starling and asked him directly if the woman in bed with him was his wife when he answered no she retorted are you so fond of your wife's sister as to be in bed with her Mrs. Lyle then reprimanded the minister for his conduct, called him ignorant, and told the presbytery that she was very much distressed by the wound he had given to his profession. Mrs. Lyle's use of the physicality of emotional response to the scene is likewise embedded in the testimonies of the others. Sarah Cummins spoke of her disgust, and Margaret was also left in a... Much distressed state at the sight of the parathem in bed. And such physical and emotional responses indicate attitudes to illicit sexuality. All three of them drew on a shared language of shame and morality that reflected societal attitudes on the boundaries of incest. The presbytery also called in Master Sterling and his sister in law and asked them for their version of events. They both admitted that they were in the bed, but each maintained that nothing untoward had happened. And in fact, Mr. Sturding framed his defense in the language of familial affection and brotherly responsibility. He claimed that he had only allowed his sister not to share the bed because she was very afraid to sleep alone and that he therefore thought it cruel to deny her his protection. Sterling also tackled the issue of their posture in bed, while he claimed that he had lay with his to Martha. He later admitted that they were lying together in the manner the witnesses attested. He explained this by saying he had his arm under Martha's head in order that he might hear her the better. Sterling also maintained that the pair were dressed appropriately and that he also asked her to keep on her had a c- 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 coat. It's Martha's statement broad oops her statement uh, broadly um, reflected that of um uh, Sterling and while she admitted that they were in naked bed, she added that the pair had discussed the propriety of their sharing a bed, a fact that perhaps indicates that they were aware that the, their bed sharing could raise some eyebrows. And indeed, the space of the bed was a widely recognised element in courtship mm-hmm. rituals, particularly among Presbyterians. So all involved in the case would have been aware that bed sharing did carry these actual connotations. According to Martha, uh, it's Mr. Sterling had maintained that there was nothing wrong in their sharing a bed, that he would not think evil of it as their intentions were innocent and indeed she alleged that there was no need for her to be afraid in sharing a bed with him no more than if it were her sister. So again this insinuation here, being that they were sharing a bed like two siblings. The presbytery, however, thought different. While they agreed that there was not sufficient proof that the pair had been engaged in any form of sexual activity, they could not dispute that they had overstepped the boundaries of brotherly and Sisterly behaviour. As in the witness testimony, it was the manner of Mr. Stirling and Martha in the bed that caused so much offence. Found lying so close to together, cheek to cheek, was in itself so immodest as to strengthen suspicion. As a minister, Stirling was held to a higher standard, and the Presbytery ruled that his misstep would have a lasting impact on the church. And indeed, if the Presbytery believe that Sterling's behaviour could encourage others to do the same, it's indicated by their comment that such an example in a minister tends to destroy one of the best securities of modesty and encourages the wishes. they therefore took the extreme step of deposing him from office and directed that he should make a public profession of his sorrow for the reproach he had brought upon them and thereafter he was to be admitted as a private person. The case of the Reverend Sturding raises a number of issues about the boundaries of appropriate conduct in the family as well as as well as the degree of sort of feelings that ministers were placed under. The backdrop to the case is, of course, the long-running dispute over the marriage question, that heightened anxieties not only about the family as a potentially incestuous space, but the upheaval that such relationships could cause to the order of the family. It's Mr. Stirling's wife was very much a... Al- Live and his case reflected anxieties that men were unable to curb sexual desires for women who were not uh, their um, who were not their own uh, sisters. And as a minister, the poster boy for the public face of the church, these anxieties were mapped onto uh, the of Master Darling, who was reprimanded for bringing the reputation of the church into um, question. It's um, so the next case I want to introduce you to is that of the Reverend Jonathan Prime, which appeared in the minute book of the Associate Reformed Presbytery in 1795. And this is a presbytery which has a lot of Irish connections this is the most detailed case of alleged same sex sexual activity between my end that i i have encountered no comparable case exists for ireland that i know of yet and the case came t- t- when it was announced to the presbytery that Mr. Brown was to take up a role as Minister of the Congregation of London at Derry. A petition signed by a number of men was handed in protesting the appointment on the grounds that Mr. Brown had behaved himself in one or more instances in a very un and lascivious manner with one or more of the male sex. The presbytery began an investigation into the claims inviting evidences on either side. The man at the centre of the complaint was Mr. Daniel Reynolds, who was not a Minister, and was an ordinary member of the congregation, and he told how one night while sharing a bed with Mr. Prime, that he behaved in a very in- delicate manner by putting his arms around me, getting upon my body, and with indecent motions emitted on me. And the presbytery undertook a rather intimate and explicit line of questioning so they asked Reynolds whether brian had emitted on his skin or on his sh- shirt the answer was his skin whether he had entered his body the answer was no whether his back or his face was to him his answer was his face his reaction to the event, and Reynolds said that he was amazed, and whether or not the pair had any conversation. And Reynolds said that Brown had told him, Now I'll have you. If you were a young lady, what would become of you? Mr. Brown was also invited to call some witnesses of his own, and these witnesses cast doubt on the veracity of the claims. On the one hand, several ministers in the presbytery testified that they had also shared a bed with Mr. Brown on many occasions and that he had never behaved inappropriately with them. The Reverend Rufus Anderson, for example, testified that he had slept in a bed with Mr. Brown often whenever they had been at... college with one another when they had been uh, traveling the previous summer. Nothing inappropriate had ever occurred at these times, and he never knew anything of Mr. Prime on becoming a good character. This was likewise confirmed by Moses C- Cochrane, who said he had slept in one head With Mr. Brown about five or six different times and knew nothing unbecoming a pleasant behaviour in him. Further doubts were cast on David Reynolds's allegation when others testified that they had heard slightly altered versions of the story with the details slightly different in each case. The Reverend. Benjamin Pliske explained how he told Reynolds that he had destroyed his character in swearing against Mr. Prime, to which Reynolds replied, God, God, comment, what have I sworn? I have sworn that Mr. Brown, hugging me up sometime in the night, said, oh, if you were a girl, how I would embrace you. Likewise, Master Nathaniel Warrens deposed that he had overheard the conversation between Whisk and Reynolds, and when it was alleged that Reynolds had hurt his own character, he replied that the whole thing was a goddamned. And all he had sworn was that Mr. Brown had turned over in the night, put his arms around him and said, oh, if you were a girl, how sweetly I would embrace you. The variances in the charges were enough to convince the presbytery that the charges were unsupported and it's Mr. Brown was installed as the minister of the congregation. Now, there are a number of ways of in- interpreting the case and it's a question that I've been working on with students here at Hertfordshire. So on the one hand you may write the particulars of this case and decide that it's a rare insight into same tax relationship, that the case perhaps sheds light on a hidden world of sexual activity shared between men. And if I'm honest, whenever I came across it in the archive, and my head boggled, that's the first thing I thought as well. On the other hand, you might read this case and see evidence of sexual assault, and indeed that is a reaction that, that the case has a And there's a really excellent article by um, Stephen Robertson on uh, male sexual violence that takes that stance. And he argues that we cannot use these cases as evidence of homoerotic desire or homosexual activity because they are not consensual. It's my own reading now called in, it's the middle. And it it was much to scholarship I've been engaging with at the moment on the queering of masculinity and the queering of religion. Uh, It's by the former I mean unsettling heteronormative uh, writings of my sources. So I don't make any Assumptions on the sexual identity of Mr. Prime, and I likewise do not assume that contemporary understandings of things like t- 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 desire, sex, and, and um, its intimacy are always heterosexual. And in the querying of religion, I likewise challenge assumptions that its religion and sexuality were conceived in opposition to one another, um, but rather that it's religious imp- belief in f- poems expression. And in this, I'm thinking of the work of Richard Codpear and Bruce Torsey, t- 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 who have written about how relationships between evangelical men were built on emotion, s- sex, and desire. T- t- So the case of the Reverend Jonathan Brown, I think, brings into sharper focus the role that religion played in shaping male intimacy and male sexuality. As the work of God, Beer and Torsey has revealed, it was not unusual for male ministers to form um, its close relationships around the concept of christian friend such men would write to one another of their longing to hold and hug and um, to kiss one another and these words and platitudes were exchanged not as lovers but were emotionalized and sexualized through the language of christian friendship and what I hope to do when I can travel again is to go back to the Presbyterian archive and it's look at their correspondence to see if i able to apply that over to my Presbyterian ministers. But it was not uncommon um, for men to share a bed in this. Period. A man who travelled with one another, or who were who who went um, to college with one another, would have regularly shared a bed. And these were men who worked very closely with one another, who travelled with one another, who slept in the same bed, who lived and loved as members of a spiritual community. And for some of these men, it would have been within groups of their meal friends, that they exchanged sexual knowledge and practised for their future relationships with women. And I think the oft sort of quoted example in England is um, of John Cannon, who kept a diary, and in that he wrote about how men would uh, practice masturbation with one another, and that was to help them learn how to do these things um, in uh, their adulthood. Um, So intimacy of the body would have been very common among these types of men. I think the Brown case maybe exposes in a very public way the intimate boundaries of these relationships. Jonathan Brown's words um, to Daniel reynolds telling him what he would do to him if he was a girl can perhaps be set within that um can perhaps be set within that um audition where men exchanged sexual knowledge with one another in the darkness of a shared room as a man who was not a minister daniel Reynolds may not have been aware of that tradition, and Brown's inducting him into that world was actually quite risky. The testimony of the other ministers who closed ranks and attested to the neutrality of their bed sharing can perhaps be seen as defending the boundaries of their own Christian friendship. Those who testified in defense of Jonathan Bryan castigated Daniel Reynolds for ruining his own reputation in making the report, perhaps indicating that the boundaries of what was acceptable between men was much more flexible than what we might Im- um, Im- imagine. Indeed, the case itself hinged on whether whether or not Pen- had occurred, not the sharing of caresses or kisses. Daniel Reynolds himself tried to defend his actions by saying he had never accused Mr. Brown of sex itself. He had only complained about his over. Um, familiarity, and we see that in his exasperated reply to the insinuation that penetration had occurred whenever he says, it is a goddamned lie. I swore that after I went to play with Mr. Brown, that he turned over in the night, put his arms around me and said, if you were a girl, how sweetly I would embrace you, adding that he would sink into everlasting perdition if he said anything else, and how he hoped that his arm would would, um, fall off. The presbytery ruled that the charges were unproven and Brown was installed. Yet it is worth noting that eight years later, he was again called in front of the presbytery on these same types of charges. Um in the month before the case came out, he had handed in his notice and said he wanted to end the connection he had in um, the community. And the presbytery agreed and he preached a farewell sermon. This was then followed a few months afterwards with a um, with um, the complaint that he uh, had behaved uh, in. Recently with other young men. Now, while the Presbytery did not think there was sufficient ground for condemnation, t- 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 they did think the Brian should be reprimanded for the multiple instances of imprudence, in delicacy, and in decency of his conduct. And for that he was suspended um, for eight months and then he was brought in again. Um, again what I think this emphasizes is that there is an awareness among ministers of this type of behaviour. The presbytery do not think that he should be condemned but instead he is only reprimanded and the reason behind that I think is that he brings that type of behaviour out in the open um outside of the boundaries of Christian friendship and the darkness of the bedroom and out into the public. I guess one of the key points I'm trying to make is that we will never know what actually went on in um it's the bedroom. And I think an interpretive framework that cast him either as a sexual predator, or as a man acting out his sexual identity, on the other hand, fails to capture the explanatory potential of the case, especially in in the reactions of those around them. These allegations were not enough to stop him becoming a minister, and I haven't been able to find any other Mention of it in uh, the papers and even the published histories of the congregation don't make a huge issue of it. He is remembered rather fondly um, as a man who possessed certain peculiarities of character, but his ability as a minister was never. Called in um, to question. So I think the case presents us with the opportunity to further explore those relationships between religion and intimacy. Okay, so I just bring some of that stuff together. Um, I think Presbyterian ideas about sex, marriage, and the family were inscribed on the bodies and the behaviour of their. Ministers, as men said, apart from their c- communities, their actions were heavily scrutinized. Its missteps on the part of m- ministers threatened the reputation of the church. And in the highly competitive religious m- marketplace of 18th and 19th century America, the Presbyterian church was concerned to make sure its m- ministers behaved themselves out publicly, a fact that perhaps explains the closer scrutiny that they were placed under in, in uh, comparison with ministers in Ireland. Moreover what I hope comes through in the paper is the connection between um religion and sexuality. So religious belief was intimately connected with Sexual expression, whether it helped to shape what was um, forbidden, as in the case of incest, or in or in channeling appropriate forms of sexual expression in the private worlds of the bedroom and the public world of the community. And please have a look at the project um, on social media. Thanks.
0: Thank you very much, Leon. I think that was, that was absolutely wonderful and um, fascinating in so many ways and I think you've got such rich source material which I think is really striking when one sees those images in the session books and really I think there's absolutely fascinating cases and you've done extraordinarily well I think to show the various possibilities of reading them and I think the benefits of the close reading there and I like the way that you've been referencing that you've been doing this during teaching and the ways in which we've been managing to think about, to think about these questions in a way when we can't do the usual, the usual sort of research options on that. And um, I'm just going to throw open the floor to questions. If anybody wants to post a question in the question and answer tab, please do. Or if you want to raise your virtual hand, I can also call upon you. So whichever, whichever suits you best. And um, we have plenty of time for questions and I've been very curious to get some feedback. Um, pose questions to Leanne from I think, there's a n- number of people in the room I think might have interesting perspectives here um I suppose just while we're waiting there's a couple, a couple of things that struck me and one of them I think is you mentioned that the you mentioned there in your conclusion you made a reference to the religious marketplace and to the difference in the scrutiny of ministers on either side of the Atlantic and I was kind of wondering about this through your paper and what is the, is this about our religious marketplace is this about could it be about sort of existence in a frontier society, and I'm thinking of the way Patrick Griffin has written about some of the, well, the Presbyterian sort of migrant communities and the way in which you know they need to almost reinforce their discipline to maintain social cohesion. And is this about a more ready supply of ministers available? Is there, like, are there other possibilities or here, or is this is this also perhaps evidence of the sort of the records and the different record survivals? Do you have better records? That's your question, if I'm kind of wondering about. Do you have better records for North America than for Ireland? Sorry, there's a whole bunch of questions there, so I'll link did you yeah. get it together.
2: Um, in terms of records, um, so the stuff that survives in America tends to be the Presbytery records are great, there's not a lot of the Kirk question ones in Ireland. Um, the survival of the records isn't great anyway, um, particularly for the 18th it's entry but from what I can see in versus the American versus the Irish is that the Kirk ones in Ireland are better than the ones in America but the presbytery ones in America are better than the presbytery ones in Ireland so it's really trying to get uh, the balance between it's the two um the presbytery records in Ireland to do with ministers misbehaving a lot of that tense well there is there's um a couple of really good alcohol cases but a lot of it tends to be how they are performing in their role as a minister in terms of like his preaching and stuff whereas in America it is his behavior that's under so much scrutiny and I think it's because a lot of the communities it's one of the ministers will have to ride on horse between each of them and I think that they just place him under a lot under a lot more surveillance. And there's an awareness that if they if they are that um, if the CUNYs are able to go to anyone else, so um, they are much more concerned to keep their people happy and under. And um, it's one way they do that is through like the scrutiny of the minister compared to Ireland.
0: Okay, yeah, that's, that's very helpful. Yeah, now, just picking up the question here from Ruth Whelan, so I'm just going to allow Ruth to pose that question to you. <laughs> uh,
1: thank you. Can you hear me, Leanne? Yeah. And thank you for that. Um, it wasn't so much a question cause, uh, as a kind of observation. I work on um, Huguenots uh, and in their correspondence correspondence between young males, such as you describe, you know, have been to college, um, uh, who have obviously travelled together, um, it is also usual for them to share the same bed and to express a desire to to share the same bed. Now, how you interpret that, I think, as you say, um, is the problem and it's important for us not to project our own categories of interpretation onto it. Um, because the other thing is, you know, if you look at um uh, at the possibilities of language, um, you know, what 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 language is available to describe male friendship? You know, do, do do we have any language to describe male friendship as a form of desire that's non-sexual? So you find in their letters that they're using the language of what we call galanterie, which is of heterosexual flirtation. Um, um, um both of them will be in heterosexual marriages. So, um, you know, how do you interpret it? It's really problematic. I've been inclined to think that it's, you know, because they, they're all uh, reformed and very um, moral and upright and, in that, that they know that there is a limit beyond which they aren't going to go. And that gives them the freedom to play with this language of desire um, in such a way as to express friendship because they have no other language to express it in, um, but you know, as I say, I, I you know, it's not really a question, more of an, an observation, which which resonates with the material that you have and and the problems it raises for interpretation.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, that's what I want. Whenever I, whenever I, whenever I can go back to America, hopefully, sometimes soon, is to get into the archive and look at their actual correspondence with one and another. Um, to see, am I able to test that across? Because I think with uh, the Brown case, it has that many different types of, there's um, all different ways of thinking about him and the role that like its ministers played in one of those, Lives and st- the stuff I've been reading by uh, Bruce Torsi and Richard Godbeer also talks about that emotionalized um, language of Christian friendship. And I, yeah, I think it's just really, it's trying to, um, um, I guess it's trying to uh, pick it all apart is like the difficult thing. So that's what I would like to be able to do is have a look at their own sort of correspondence as well. But I will have a look at anything I can find on um, the Huguenots that you've just mentioned there.
0: Excellent, we have got a few more questions coming in here um, on the question question sheet and I think some very interesting ones here, one from Claire McNulty. Hi Leanne. thanks for a great paper. Do we know anything about Mr. Sterling's wife? Did she know about the alleged affair and was she asked to testify before the presbytery?
2: No, she wasn't. And this is the really weird thing. So the wife is never brought in, but um, it's Martha is. And the stuff I have been uh, its reading on the dead wife's sister debate for America and then whenever it comes across into England is that a lot of the time it's women are absent completely out of um, the infested... And this is because men are seen as being uh, the are seen as being this sexual aggressors, and were um, if the women involved aren't seen as having any type of agency or say over what happened in that the relationship. So the fact I have her testimony is in is actually quite. useful but I don't hear from his wife which is really yeah it's awful Uh, it's uh, Uh, annoying because I would like to hear what the wife had to say but no I don't have it
0: okay and we then have a question here from Edna Fitzgerald asking um Again, a very interesting talk. I think we can agree. Is there a similar material which may indicate many of the same issues among Scottish Presbyterian ministers? Maybe looking eastward as well as westward, I suppose.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I I've been reading um its books by Marco Todd and Illess June on like its masculinity and ministers and I haven't seen anything sort of around um, it's the language of Christian friendship and Mayan m- so if anybody has any recommendations please email me them but no I'm not really a, a I'm aware of this um, um, poor I'm um, Scotland but if you know of anything I'd be happy to receive it so I um,
0: have a question from um, Robert Armstrong, a really fascinating paper. Thank you. Remembering, he remembers encountering Robert Dara mercifully, he says, not in person. And his sense was that the accusations against him reflect tensions within the local community in Monaghan. He wonders, is it possible to detect these kinds of local tensions in other cases and how far they might have a bearing on whether accusations or charges of sexual misconduct were brought against other, other ministers?
2: Yep. That's a good question. I have been reading a book by um, William C- 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 um on sex in the church in the long 18th century, and they do a whole chapter on its cases brought against ministers and and on how it's never only about um, sex. It's usually about everything else that's happening in uh, its the community. So if um, if if the minister has rubbed anyone up the wrong way. That can also be at the end of um um the rumor that has been brought against him. Um, my reading initially of the Reverend uh, Jonathan Brown one was that he was going to be appointed as um the, the, the minister, and I thought that maybe there was a bit of um uh. A jealousy was going on in terms of someone else wanted that appointment. And that could have been where um, it's the rumour had come from. And then it's after he is given up his role that that is the rumours up again. So I, I think how um, its relationships are going on in the background has an impact on the cases that are brought against them as well so yeah you yeah he's right any any other further questions
0: here before we finish up just picking up on on that side i was wondering about um brown's sort of just like he leaves the congregation before before he censured, and is this is he acting as sort of ahead of future censure do you have any sense of that or is is there a possibility that this is the go away before we have to do something about you and the sort of moving of parishes that we've seen in sort of in more recent times of sort of with you know i think catholic church clergy been encouraged to sort of shift move onwards is that is that, is that a possibility there
2: he never actually leaves he never leaves the community he um he remains in uh, the parish for the for um it's the remainder of his life. So it's nothing that like he is ashamed of or that people hold against him. And that is also echoing other things I've been reading about um is cases of homosexuality in the Atlantic world, that there is a lot of um toleration att- um. For these types of behaviours, and it's only if they disrupt other elements of the community that it becomes a problem. So he doesn't actually have to move away or go into hiding or anything; he remains there.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Um, there's another question here from Ruth Leaden as well. that Ruth to again pose that. <laughs> uh,
1: um, uh, yeah, I was just wondering in terms of the scrutiny they're um put under in the um. American colonies Um, you know in how far is that uh, because you know you refer to the marketplace in how far is it because they are in competition with um, Anglicanism and are invested in presenting themselves as as more moral than their dissipate uh, Anglican fellow ministers Um, there's a, a famous case of cross-dressing in early 18th century New York, um, uh, the governor uh, who, uh, after communion, paraded in women's clothes on the ramparts of the Fort of New York. Um, so, you know, a certain dissipation is expected of, of Anglicans, but certainly not of the Reformed. Yeah,
2: um, there is a couple of the communities, we'll, um, they, um, have complaints that it's other ministers from other places are coming in and trying um, it's to poach people. And if um, there's a lot of the time it's one Presbyterian minister is responsible for overseeing um, a couple of communities and he does have to ride on horse between them all. So um, I th- think in those um circumstances the presbytery is a where that they need to keep everybody happy and it's hard to keep that type of oversight over its communities that are so uh, far apart and who they don't have enough ministers to oversee um, so, yeah, I do think like the competitive nature of the place is also um, factoring in here.
0: Excellent. I think we may, we may leave it there, but I just want to thank Leanne again for a superb paper and for dealing with questions so well, and I think a range of issues have come up here. I think this is a research project. I think we'll all be looking out for when you finally get back into the archives. And I appreciate that you're probably anticipating that, like all of us, but, it would, but also with great trepidation and uncertainty when that will happen. Um, so I just want to again thank Leanne um, in the usual manner. And um, you can give a virtual applause if you wish. And just to highlight that our next seminar coming up will not be next week. We have Reading Week here in Trinity, which I think we're all very grateful for. And the following week, on the 22nd of March, we'll be returning. um France, and we'll have Miss Kathleen McCrudden from Yale, who'll be talking about egalite, fraternity, individuality, Sophie de Grouchy, moral republicanism, and the history of French liberalism, 1785 to 1815, so again, I think something quite different, and um, so that is in two weeks' time. In the meantime, um, just to thank Diane again for a wonderful paper and for contributing to the seminar. To thank everybody for turning up. Thank you. Bye. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures stamping provenance Language towards the history to of the Taimon Year Library.
1: As well as being haired. The Hub is it's a space. Contemplating Ireland through the
0: communities created Star, by quality. Star, quality. Quality. Language Language changes.
1: The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminist racism in okay. the slime market. Here's to the next ten years.